0: Welcome back to The Megawatt Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And in this series, we are examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing, and recharging energy markets. The rapid expansion of energy storage is, of course, great news for our ability to deploy and to use renewable energy. But doing so is not without its own challenges batteries require raw materials from all across the world and an ever more complex supply chain. Pump storage sites, for example, require major changes to land use and access. And what do we do with facilities or assets that reach the end of their life? Is it better to reuse, recycle, or to decommission entirely? Meanwhile, how do developers and investors ensure their commitments meet ever stricter ESG guidance when deciding which projects to pursue? We intend to explore all these questions and more over the course of our episode. With me to tackle the topic is Professor Simon Pringle, who heads up the newly created Sustainability and ESG Hub at BDO. An Honorary Professor of Sustainability at the University of Edinburgh Business School, Simon is an expert in the alignment of commercial strategy with sustainability, risk and reputation, and brings with him expertise from a storied career across a variety of public companies and nonprofits. We are also joined by Peter Kavanaugh, the Chief Executive and Founder of Harmony Energy, an independent developer and operator of renewable energy and battery assets. Peter has over 16 years' experience in the renewable energy sector across financing and development in support of a more sustainable energy system. We're delighted to have him with us today. So, as ever, I think it's a good idea to ground us in the basics. And for that, I'm going to turn first to our resident professor. Simon, what do we mean when we talk about sustainability and and how do we think about it in relation to energy storage?
1: Oh, thanks, Andrew, and thank you very much for the, the introduction. You know, I think we are, we're faced with lots of definitions at the moment aren't we in terms of net zero esg sustainability and and, and so on i think when we look at sustainability we are really talking about the way in which value models and business models can move forwards without being sort of too impactful and ideally get to a place where they're genuinely regenerative and so you know we, this this agenda has evolved through the 30 years i've been involved with it and we're now in a place where the the ability to leverage technologies, supply chains, skill sets um, becomes really you know really exciting. And and so if we ask about what is a green business in five years time, we'd probably just talk about a business. What what does a green job look like in five years time? We'd talk about a job. You know we're very much seeing this mainstreaming. So the sustainability agenda is really about rethinking the way in which businesses create value, um, protect value. And manage risk and and do that within planetary boundaries, both social
2: and environmental.
0: So
1: one of the businesses hopefully looking to do that is, of course, Harmony Energy.
0: Um, And Peter, can you give us a quick introduction to what it is you do?
2: Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So Harmony is a developer um, of predominantly very large scale energy storage. So we're technology agnostic, but also onshore wind and large scale solar. Um, So we have main presence in the UK, but also presence in France, Germany, Poland and New Zealand. Uh, and I guess we're slightly different from others in that we do um, the origination. So we develop, build, own and operate. So we take it right the way through the whole chain from site origination to operation.
0: So obviously we're here to talk about sustainability. One of the, the big things we obviously uh, were interested in is kind of what kinds of sustainability or ESG concerns do you see from from investors and from your business?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it's very high up now on investors' priority list, which is great because the reason we all came into this industry, or most of us came into this industry, was for that that reason, sustainability. So, you know, that is actually a core value of Harmony's, um, but also a core value of many of our investors. So we have a listed investment trust, trust called Harmony Energy Income Trust listed on London Stock Exchange. And, you know, if you ask most of the investors, institutional investors in there, the reason they're invested in Harmony is, for our sustainability credentials. So we have the green economy mark from London Stock Exchange uh, and we follow the UN principle for responsible investments as well. So yeah, I, I think it's really, really high up now on investors' priority lists, which is great to see.
0: You mentioned those two kind of standards there. I mean Just, just briefly, how are they assessed and what do they mean? What do they guarantee from, from an investor's point of view?
2: So the um, the UN one is um, you know relatively new, then um, we have our own in-house sustainability manager who manages all the the work that goes into that process. So it's it's a very lengthy process to go through, and the the green economy mark is is more straightforward in that um, so long as your business I think it's something like fifty percent is generated from low carbon activities, whereas Harmony, naturally, all our work is you know well in excess of fifty percent, obviously. Um, but you qualify for that potential to get that green watermark. And you're
0: you're building uh, solar and wind and and uh, energy storage, kind of increasingly all together. Is that is that mainly kind of co-located, or is it spread out? Is it a mixture of both?
2: It's mainly standalone. So we've done um, we've developed a couple of um, got through planning a couple of sites that are co-located, um, but predominantly we're better known for our large scale energy work. So we own and operate the the largest battery in Europe near Hull. Um, and that's our typical model um, because you have more freedom and flexibility to operate the battery in in multiple markets um, so we find that that model works well um you know as does co-location um, but I think you know our preference is co-location with solar because it's more predictable than wind um, <clears throat> but we need a mix of all three really standalone and co-located wind co-located solar
0: so Simon we've we've heard kind of what harmony does and that it can be kind of vetted as a an ESG type investment you know what What are ELSA developers kind of having to do to make a case for the sustainability credentials if if anything you know are, are they just a tick in a box and you know everyone wants into storage for that reason
1: or is there slightly more complexity to it well there is a little bit more to it and, and I'm sure you know Peter's fully aware and we can talk about it later on but um you know one of the um where, where we are now uh, in in terms of expectation we've moved from scope one and scope two into scope three, looking at the way in which supply chain works. So looking at renewable energy and and storage organizations and really understanding how they manage their own supply chain, how they manage their own social impacts, making sure that just the the very fact that they store energy and are you know a really critical part of the renewable energy system isn't sufficient on its own terms. You know, what what are they actually doing to make sure that they that they keep their own promises and, and manage their own system in a way that's really um in, in line with the commitments that are being made to the the investor audience and the other stakeholders as well is key. And that's in no way um, implied to be critical to Peter or anybody else for that matter. But I think the agenda is moving on to that to say, you know, we need to know what sits behind this really important value proposition at the front end.
0: Yeah, we're going to grill Peter shortly on that. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I
2: look look forward to it.
0: (laughs) Does that uh, reflect your experience? I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier, you kind of have just undergone a recent fundraising, you know, is this something that was on that agenda? And and what was that process like in terms of that that interaction and that focus on, on ESG?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a big big focus on ESG for the last couple of years. You know, we <clears throat> we did our first big fundraise in November 21 when we IPO'd and, you know, there was a, a very big focus on the ESG and we've developed that ever since and it's a key focus for us. So, you know, to give you an example, um, as I've mentioned, we have full-time sustainability manager. Um, Lucy who's doing a, a great job for us. Um, we've also developed our own <clears throat> asset management platform, which, so in terms of measuring data, which is key, as Simon's alluded to, um, there's a lot of information out there. And sometimes you scratch your head and go, how have certain companies arrived at this metric? And we wanted to dig, dig deeper on that. So the harmonized platform that our own asset management team is developing is feeding into that process and measuring our exact carbon footprint. And we hope to be able to publish the raw data next year in our annual report. Um, and I think, you know, digging down deeper as well into the supply chain is is key for us. So when we IPO'd, um, we had a clean portfolio of um, Tesla battery assets. We had a framework agreement with Tesla. And, you know, their sustainability credentials do stand out in terms of battery supplies. They're very transparent. Um, you know, they're by no means the uh, cheapest on the market, as you'd expect. Um, but we wanted a quality project that was going to last for as, as long as possible. And um, we wanted some, uh, you know, business um, like Tesla with very high sustainability standards standing behind them and more transparency than some of the other players in the market.
0: So it's a good point, I think, to to move on to then that further down that supply chain. So you mentioned Tesla who are supplying kind of battery units. Are there other things that you need to think about in the wider battery supply chain or, or, you know, when you're putting together an asset where you need to source things from and and how does that interact with, you know, your sustainability goals?
2: Yeah, so we do think a lot. So we're completely technology agnostic. So we have used batteries from Tesla. We've recently signed with another company called Envision, who are less well-known, but fantastic company. And the key driver of that, again, was their sustainability credentials. So Envision manufacture cells through a net zero factory facility. It is out of China. But they also have production facilities in the UK, in Sunderland, and they're looking at building out gigafactories in Europe as well. So we look at that whole chain and try and source where we can locally. So take, for example, our Pillswood site. And this is moving away from the lithium ion production, which I'll come back to. But on the Pillswood site, we use transformers that came from Leeds. So within half an hour of the actual site, which was fantastic. And we also used the steel platform from Warrington, which was an hour away. So where we can, we will utilize local resources, which is all important in trying to reduce the overall carbon chain. I I think we still, as an industry, have a difficulty in that, you know, naturally, a lot of the components for these products still comes out of the the Far East. And that's just the reality of the way the industry has developed. And I think, you know, there is now more emphasis on trying to build out, you know, whether it's gigafactories in Europe or more component manufacturers, inside Europe or the UK, I think is really important going forward. And particularly, I think we'll come on to the point about recycling, but particularly when you're looking at end of life of these assets in 15 or 20 years time, where do those battery cells go to get recycled? How do we try and reduce the carbon emissions from that whole logistics journey? If we can have a recycling facility in the UK, um, that would be much more our preference than having to ship cells sells back to the US or China for example
0: I think it's fair to say a lot of information a lot of misinformation about kind of batteries and the whole wider battery supply chain in particular you know Simon are there kind of key things or facts that we should be thinking about when we look at that that whole chain
1: Oh, gosh, I think this is probably a question for both Peter and I, actually. I think you know, if we look at the, the supply chain of it and the end-of-life recoverability, recyclability of it as well, I mean, things are moving along really very quickly, aren't they? So you know, the the, you know, the efficiency levels that we're, we're gaining and the, the balance of materials that are being required. So if we look at the, the amount of copper, for example, that's going into a, an average um, EV right now, and that's not exactly a battery question, but across the EV as a whole, um, that's been reduced dramatically generation by generation. And by that, I mean probably in two years by two years. But yes, there are clearly still some some really um, open questions as to the, um, the social impact that um, some of the um, extractive industries have. And there, there remains a, um, a difficult correlation um, between where we are, um, you know, Gaining our sort of cadmium, lithium, even aluminium, copper, and so on, and and where you know where, where social impacts and wider environmental impacts are happening, and and so we have at the moment one of those transitional trade-off kind of questions where you know there are there are impacts right now that really need to be managed effectively, but. We also know that the um, the work that's um, being undertaken is is designed around a a different and lower carbon future. So it's a it's a complex space. Um, I think the the risk is if we get carbon tunnel vision and ignore all of the the social, the biodiversity, the water, the educational, you know, frankly, you know, any number of different impacts, and that would be a that would be a tragedy in the making. So. Um, Keeping keeping that in balance as we go forward is going to be key.
0: Yeah, I think I think it is really interesting. Like energy storage in general is a very forward looking, very kind of technologically motivated uh, sector. But obviously, it's ultimately reliant on kind of some of the oldest types of extractive industries. And there's you know a lot of that tension. I find especially in the coverage around things like electric vehicles. We're talking about kind of rare earth mining. We're talking about sourcing some particular components for, or at least the raw materials from places like the DRC or China. You know, is that something, Peter, that you're aware of in in your discussions? You know, someone that is using batteries and and discussing to investors and to other people about using them. Is that something that comes up a lot?
2: Yeah, very much so. And it's really interesting to see how that's evolved from when we, you know, Harmony was set up in, originally set up in 2010 and it was predominantly a wind business and we moved into batteries in 2016. Now in 2016, stationary storage in UK was fairly limited and it was all using cells which contained lithium-ion cells, which contained cobalt and so for example now within the short space of time we've moved to for what we call LFP cells which don't contain any cobalt which comes out of the Dominican Republic of Congo so we can say all the assets we have in our listed vehicle do not contain cobalt which is a wonderful development that needed to happen but I think the industry is you know not just focused on sustainability of the energy it is the full chain the the full ESG chain and people like ourselves are really pushing for this so you're seeing the development of sodium ion batteries, which we can come on to touch on later. Um, But I think really, you know, that's what the investors are demanding. That's what the public is demanding. And it will drive that change to make the whole chain more sustainable. You know, when we came into the space, I remember asking one of the first suppliers we met, um, a top tier supplier, you know, what they did at the end of life with batteries. And their answer wasn't something that I'd want to repeat on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't their recycle, put it that way. Whereas now they are. Yeah. You know, and that's great progress to see. And that's, you know, we need to keep that pressure on to make sure that everyone's acting as responsibly as possible. Because, you know, once you've mined these elements, why not recycle them? Yes, there is a cost to doing that. But the financial cost is, is well worth paying. But the environmental cost,
1: Peter. Could, so, in, are you seeing, you know, as the um, as the market shifts, and, and certainly as the um, the market for both static and and mobile storage sort of moves on very rapidly, that the you know the, the the valuation of recoverable metals, recoverable elements is, is is changing. Behind that, in line with that, ahead of it, how do you how do you see that evolving? Are we are we seeing a secondary market essentially emerging for um, the, you know, the key metals and elements that, that relate to storage?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely an established secondary market now, uh, and it will grow exponentially. But I guess you know we're probably ten years out from the real volume drive where EVs come off and. You know, maybe they're they're used to repurpose for large scale energy storage, maybe they're straight recycled, but certainly in our large scale energy storage plants, you know, we've got very long term warranties on our kit. So we're probably looking at sort of 20 years out before we start to to recycle. And you've already got, you know, some very big players out there doing the recycling at large scale, like Redwood Resources, for example, and others in the UK looking at different recycling technology, which is more environmentally friendly. So there's lots of lots of interest in this space because, I mean, ultimately, people can see the space in EVs, in energy storage generally, is going to grow exponentially, particularly over the next 10 years. And I guess
1: that links that links the duty cycles, doesn't it, of the vehicles, which are going to change as they go through their generations, right? So they all the static storage for that
2: matter. Yeah, that, that that's right. And I think actually most EVs are probably surprised on the upside as to how many miles they're capable of doing. So you'll you know, I mean, Tesla published the numbers last year, for example, where I think their average fleet, where they had exceeded two hundred thousand miles, they'd only degraded the battery by like twelve percent, which is phenomenal when you compare that against a traditional fossil fuel car. And the, you know. The materials you've gone through to to get to two hundred thousand miles, so you know <clears throat> that's really encouraging to see, and that technology is continuously improving.
0: I think the other thing I'm interested in is the, the sustainability from a kind of uh, long term, you know, making sure these elements are extracted kind of fairly and equitably, and you know, with the social impact there. But there is also presumably a sustainability impact in terms of your access to them and your access to market, you know, and, and access to a, a steady supply of them to ensure that you can build a business around that. Is is that a concern as well? And you know, are you seeing suppliers uh, change strategies in order to to kind of maintain their commitments to you, Peter?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, like I say, we use two suppliers at the moment, um, Tesla and Envision, and both have different supply strategies, but they are definitely trying to make those supply chains more integrated so that there's more control on them, which is great because then they can sort of put their core values down onto those supplies and make sure that, you know, those suppliers behave responsibly. And and I think that's the, the quickest way of Cleaning up the supply chain. You know there, there is more work that needs to be done, w- without question. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, water resource and in, in lithium ion mining, etc. You know, th- there's quite a few um, issues that can be improved on, and there's a lot of technology trying to work out solutions around that.
1: Listening to what you were saying there, Peter, and just reflecting on, you know, how you know the sector you're, you know, leading and, and really invested in actually reflects other sectors as well. We have these regulatory drivers, don't we, that are um, impactful in many areas, but. Oftentimes, the non-regulatory drivers are are the most critical, and, and where a primary brand, you know, at top of the value chain, can lean down into that value chain and, and and drive change by, you know, by requirement through its procurement process, that can be um, that can be really very impactful. So I was just feeling encouraged by hearing what you are uh, what you were saying in, in terms of battery storage there, because it's it's, it's clearly clearly an area that needs that um, that change to be driven from the top, and it sounds like it is.
0: I think that takes us nicely on to scope two and uh, indeed one and three emissions, uh, which we'll cover uh, right after the break.
3: To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics. But more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO, more than a numbers machine.
0: We've we've mentioned their um, scope uh, one to three emissions, you know, Peter. How does that affect or interact with your businesses and how you think about your your investments?
2: So with scope um, one and two, they're obviously reasonably easy for us to control with our internal policies. So we have, you know, uh, internal policies on travel arrangements. We have an EV salary sacrifice scheme, as you'd probably hope a business like ours does, and we, you know, buy renewable energy and try and encourage employees to do that on their personal residence as well. Um, on on scope three, is obviously the big one, right? Um, in terms of the battery cell manufacturing, is, is the big one that we try and address as best we can. So, for example, on the last contracts we signed with Envision, um, those cells come through a renewably powered uh, manufacturing facility. Um, and we're trying to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're building an asset management platform called Harmonize, where we're trying to track all the um, carbon emissions um, throughout. The, the life cycle of a battery. Um, so we try and act as responsibly as we can and be as transparent as we can as well. And,
0: and obviously the services are ultimately that these kind of battery or storage assets will provide are, you know, in itself avoiding, you know, renewable energy being lost or, or at least sort of holding on to, to energy when it's available on the grid. Does that have kind of any impact? Is that, is that part of your proposition in terms of in direct relation to emissions?
2: Yeah, sorry, very much so. I mean, that that's central to what we're doing. So essentially, you know, batteries or energy storage can perform a number of services, but essentially what they're doing is replacing gas requirements on the network, so displacing a huge amount of, of carbon, not only by charging off renewable sources, but making sure, you know, that at the moment, if National Grid wants to balance the system through what's called the balancing mechanism, they, you know, have to call on gas assets which take longer to warm up therefore the burning gas etc uh, whereas batteries can work both ways right we can charge and we can discharge so we're much more useful longer term but not only that we can respond in milliseconds so we don't have to use energy to to warm up and fire out power we can respond in milliseconds you know whereas a gas plant obviously has to warm up to to generate power so there's a lot of emissions in that chain and people put different statistics out there so I'm a bit reluctant to put a, a big number out there but I I'm going to, to give Listen, is a bit of a guide, but I mean, Harmony as a group in terms of our listed vehicle and the private business, um, we're building out, you know, within 12 months, we'll have uh, 640 megawatts operational, all of two hour generation storage assets, um, which is probably the equivalent to replacing circa 900,000 cars on the road each year for the next 15 to 20 years. So it's a very material number. And I'm using that stat using a competitor stat. Um, We're actually going to publish our own stats next year, but I just wanted to give a sort of reference point to exactly what kind of level of impact we are having on on those direct emissions by effectively displacing the requirement to have fossil fuel assets on the network.
0: And you've also mentioned that you're kind of technology agnostic as to what kind of assets that you pursue. I mean, we've mentioned other types of this, you know, compressed air flow batteries, they're kind of all in the mix for Harmony in terms of things you would consider... How do they, you know, do they all bring with them their own kind of emissions profile or or is it about the services that they provide to you?
2: Um, It's a mixture of both, right? So we looked at flow batteries very early on. We continue to look at them and, you know, the the cost is, is improving. But it's important to look at it that we need to make it not only environmentally sustainable, but also financially sustainable. And at the moment, the costs are challenging still on flow batteries. They're getting there and really interesting, but they take up a lot of space you know, they, the upside is they, they last longer. So you get less to next to no degradation, but they're sort of less well proven at a very, very large scale. So that's the kind of issue with, with flow batteries, but we're continuously looking at different technology. Um, lithium ion works really well because it responds very, very quickly. People understand, you know, it does degrade, but relatively slowly for what we're doing. Um, it can be recycled and, um, you know, it's just very well understood technology. Um, and there's some really interesting ideas out there that we've looked at and without sort of naming names, when you sort of dig down into the details, it's things like you look at the efficiency. So, you know, with a lithium ion battery, you know, you've got very good efficiency levels, right? In terms of the amount of electricity you use to charge a battery, most of that is converted into useful energy. With other systems, um, not necessarily flow batteries, I'm not talking about flow batteries here, but with other systems, you use up a, a lot more energy and you don't get that energy back, so you lose a lot financially, but also energy wise as well. So it's not as, as useful as it can appear in the headlines. Um, so you've got to look at all those metrics to make a decision going forward about, you know, what technology is going to have the most impact and what's going to be fundable. Because without investors' support, you can't build out that technology. Actually, I think one of the,
1: the often misunderstood parts about a shift to the EV is the links, the way in which the grid's evolving. And, you know, we've been used to this 1950s generate and push kind of mindset. And of course, we're moving depending on government policy and different investment levels to something that's polydirectional. And of course, at that point, when we move to an EV, um, heavy um, sort of personal transport system, we're going to have a lot of networked batteries that just happen to be sitting outside people's um, houses or offices at the time. That ability to trade um, energy backwards and forwards with the grid, I think it's going to be really interesting, alongside static um, storage and the way in which that might unlock um, different types of community um, energy propositions or um more flexible microgrids could be could be really interesting couldn't
2: it yeah i think so definitely i mean it's it's a huge volume so even if you've got a very small percentage of that volume that's actually participating in those services then you know the more smart technology coming out to make the use of that make use of the network the better um it's definitely in the interest of the consumer to maximize efficiency across the board you know some people are sort of saying well, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I've had an electric vehicle for eight years. Would I have <clears throat> let the grid use the battery at certain times? Yes, certainly not all the time. So it can be overplayed slightly, but definitely it's going to have an impact in, in 10 years. If you look at the the volume of EVs that will be on the road in the uk and elsewhere it's going to be you know an underutilized resource if we didn't do something with it so it's great to see you know industry pushing that angle as well
1: no it really is and, and you know the extent to which vehicles whether they're ic or ev are essentially redundant assets for most of their most of their life they get used intensively for for bursts and then sit around doing nothing for most of their time i mean if they can be connected and essentially become a a trading platform and um, buy and sell power for the individual I think there are scenarios uh, maybe five or ten years in the future where the car can make you money rather than actually cost you money in terms of charging itself up
2: yeah definitely I mean it, you know it's it's not a too dissimilar model to what we're doing on the bigger batteries in terms of you will get those peak periods you know during the midday peak where solar is over in 10 years time and then during the night when when offshore wind is over so that that kind of makes sense and I think the difficult part of that jigsaw is the grid network infrastructure and the investment that needs to go into that um and and how long that will take you know we do have ev chargers at work but they you know they can't go everywhere in terms of city centers etc um and people's homes you know th- there needs to be more sort of thoughts going into that side but there's you know some very smart people working on that so i'm sure it will will evolve over the next 10 years and 10 years time we will be sat here you know with um <clears throat> several gigawatts on the uh on the system from EVs, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, and you're right. I mean, it's that that kind of DNO DSO kind of transition piece, and the, um, the extent to which policy support will be in place, and sort of regulated funding will be allowable, and so on. That's the, uh, I guess that's the, in, the inhibitor to some extent. But the the potential is really quite exciting, isn't it? In terms of really empowering communities to engage with their own energy usage and, and, and flex with, um, you know, with, with different price points and um, generation points, and so on.
2: Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, the one thing to sort of flag on it as well is how the car manufacturers treat their battery warranties if customers are, you know, overusing in those circumstances. Um, so, you know, but th- these are all things where there is, you know, a solution to all those issues, I'm sure. But that's one that often gets flagged is, well, if you're continuously using your battery and you have an eight-year warranty with your battery and you're performing grid services, will it cover the warranty on your car? Uh, you know, but I-, I think that will evolve as manufacturing changes over time. Does that
0: mean I won't be able to to launch launch my tesla to 60 miles an hour if i have to go home and run the washing machine later is that
2: the problem we're facing well exactly andrew you could be uh, yeah you could be needing to rearrange your domestic schedule <laughs> uh,
0: i'm going to move us on um, from from that topic onto another important which is the, the end of life of of assets and, and batteries in particular there seem to be kind of a lot of different uh, arguments around recycling around reuse disposal, decommissioning, lots of things. You know, do we have a, a waste problem with with batteries at the end of their lives? Or are you kind of seeing more and more solutions spring up to either recycle or reuse them, Peter?
2: Yeah, we're definitely seeing huge investment in this area. You know, there's announcements almost weekly at the moment, whether it's in China or elsewhere, about recycling facilities. Um, and it's just, it's going to grow because the money is going to be there, and uh, that's going to attract people. You know, when we have a booming cars coming to end of life in 10 years time or whatever the, the peak is um we need those facilities there um so i think you know in terms of mandatory recycling that should come in as well and you know it just makes sense because you can recycle circa 92 percent of a lithium-ion battery cell certainly in the LFP cells we're using so you know why wouldn't you use that resource um and, and people are people are onto that and there's like i mentioned earlier there's several sort of startups looking at more efficient recycling technology to the existing recycling technology that's already there, and some very smart people working in that space already. I
0: think you mentioned kind of 20-year lifespan. I mean, what's the typical uh, lifespan of your kind of assets? When when are we going to hit this problem in terms of, yeah, looking at the end of life?
2: Yeah, so Harmony's aff- assets differ to others, right? So you can't say one big battery in the UK is similar to another big battery. So we were sort of going for a very sort of gold-plated solution when we Um, started building out. So we have long-term 20-year warranties with Tesla. Uh, And, you know, other people might have, I don't know, three or five-year warranties because they're pursuing a different strategy, which is is all fine. Um, But in terms of harmony, really, we're looking sort of 20 years out from now before we will be replacing those cells and recycling them.
0: And uh, you mentioned kind of 92% odd recoverability, you know, is that, that, again, differs by manufacturer? Or do you think that's a pretty good average that the industry should aim for at, at that point?
2: Um, it differs by whichever technology you're using and probably by which manufacturer as well. Um, I'm not close enough to all the manufacturers to say what their sort of stats are. But yeah, it's, it's probably in that region for most, I would say. It's
1: really interesting, uh, Peter. I mean, there are some um, some really obvious, obvious examples where regulation has led change but I think oftentimes what happens uh, is that regulation kind of lags along behind and creates some degree of stability in a marketplace and you know I'm thinking about the WE directive uh, you know a very simplified version of where we're going to be um, around this agenda or even before that you know the, the landfill tax issues back in the late 1990s and the way in which it created an entirely new market because it created a you know, a floor price for, um, for for waste disposal in that instance or a different type of requirement for recoverability and so on. So, you know, if we're being optimistic and, and looking at a US, EU, UK kind of regulatory framework, then it's probably not beyond the realms of ambition to expect something to come in quite quickly behind those recoverability cycles and, 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 and help a market define itself and, and really start repricing the value that these – Components and um, and elements, maybe
0: from from a macro perspective. Then, Simon, I mean, are you worried about the unintended consequences, as it were, of kind of an an upsurge in, in batteries or batteries being on the market? Or are you kind of confident that these are things that are being thought about enough now that you know when it comes to these kind of end of life problems that we will have solutions?
1: I'm worried about one element of it. Um, I don't mean that in a kind of chemical sense. I mean, in, in terms of if we have a peak of demand that exceeds the ability to create governance around the supply chain, then that is troublesome. Because that's where we can create these unintended social impacts and, and, and wider environmental impacts. And we are in a world right now, I mean, we're all, I know everybody on this call is, is, is super focused on trying to you know, transition to a much more efficient, clean um, economy and and uh, and protect the boundaries that we're trying to work within, both environmentally and, and, and socially. But if the if there's an acceleration that exceeds the governance, then we could end up with really quite negative, sort of natural resource, biodiverse, um, social consequences um, as, as as a rush for minerals um, in order to, um, to to supply that demand. The other side of the equation, am I concerned about how we recover? the benefit the benefit of the um, the minerals and the um, the components that have been sort of um, used in iteration one and two no um, because I think in that instance the market will respond and perhaps regulation will respond as well but certainly the market will respond it's going to be a lot easier to recover lithium from a bunch of batteries that have come out of a car that's re- reached the end of its useful life than it will be to actually go get it in the first instance so there's a there's a pretty you know simple linear reason why that's going to be prioritized as long as those things can be aggregated up my my fear is about a governance fail in the in the short term as we go through this transitional phase
0: i'm going to move us on to other technologies outside of battery so you know again we think about kind of battery storage is very fairly limited in terms of their uh, physical footprint but we have other uh, technologies in the mix you know we have flywheels we have liquid air, compressed air. Are you aware of kind of a a greater or or worse environmental kind of benefit when you see these projects evaluated, Peter? Again, from your technology agnostic point of view.
2: Yeah, so I think, um, look, in terms of manufacturing process, there's kind of no way around it. The lithium-ion manufacturing has the most negative impact, but you've got to look at these things in the life cycle. And if your lithium-ion batteries going to be say you know two hour duration called the whole time by national grid therefore continuously displacing gas assets over a 20-year period that's going to have a very material impact on the overall chain so you need to look at it from cradle to grave really in terms of what is the net impact of mining to producing to operational stage you know what is it able to displace and if you look at it in the whole life cycle you know batteries and renewables in general, the footprint's a lot smaller than some people say it is. So, you know, I mean, Tesla, by example, published um, a report recently that was sort of just confirming that. I think they were sort of stating that actually the land used um, to get to net zero would be something like 0.2% of the overall landmass globally. And so, yes, it has an impact, um, but the net benefit is huge. And if you compare, you know, lithium-ion to, whether it's a flow battery or other, you know, liquid air or flywheels. Um, like I say, it's it's really difficult measuring because, you know, the flywheels, for example, um, or liquid air hasn't scaled to the same degree as lithium ion. So there's no sort of accurate data points now. I mean, definitely, you know, flywheels, liquid air, really, really good technology in certain situations. Um, and we will see, you know, I hope we see more of it. <clears throat> and I hope we see more of it at scale because we need more data to really, prove out certain certain theories in terms of how these assets are actually utilized when they're online. And until until you've got that data, it's really hard to come out with a sort of solid statement about what the overall impact of that technology is uh, on the environment.
0: Sure. And, and when you're, you know, you're looking at your projects and you're interacting with communities and where they're based, you know, do you see acceptance? Do you see opposition? Do you know, is there a social aspect to how you build out your projects that people also need to be aware of?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you, you always get objectors normally um, in batteries, less so on solar, you know, you, you do get objections because you are taking up land, but it's always a case of looking at proportionally and who does it benefit most? I mean, every single one of our developments does have you know the benefit to the most of the community in terms of what we're doing is ultimately driving down consumer costs you know if you speak to national grid they will say bring us more batteries because we're driving down consumer balancing costs massively right in terms of solar we're building that without a penny of taxpayer support so again it's driving down consumer costs and obviously it's doing a lot in terms of the impact of carbon emissions from other generation sources it's also allowing the land to rejuvenate over time and on every one of our projects, we increase biodiversity hugely. So, you know, for example, on our big Pillswood battery project, we planted over a mile of hedgerow. Um, on our solar projects, biodiversity is increasing by sort of over 100% on some of those projects. And we're doing one in New Zealand where we've got. I think it's about 30 hectares of rewilding, rebogging of land we're doing out there as well. So we're really very passionate about doing the right thing, trying to increase biodiversity where we can. And it's really about how much land we can secure in certain locations to do that, because it doesn't cost an awful lot to do the planting. And it's a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful thing for the next generation to see happening it also acts as a great screening around the site if you can plant trees and hedgerows you know personally i've always been passionate about wildlife so for me it's a, you know it's a pleasure to be able to see it come into fruition on our sites and then in terms of wider communities um, because we're doing everything without taxpayer subsidy, we've actually no uh, legal requirement to put in place community funding like you did on subsidised projects. Um, but we actually do do that. So on our Pillswood project, for example, we're giving £10,000 a year to local community projects. We've just actually announced we are backing seven projects in the local area, which ranges from you know gardening projects to children's educational projects in the Cottingham region, which is just north of Hull. So we're really keen on doing that on all our projects and supporting local schemes. And then with inside the main business, outside of the project SPVs, we also back local charities. So we backed um, Henshaws, which is a local Knaresborough charity. We backed Candlelighters, which is a children's cancer charity in Leeds. And we also back the Brownlee Foundation, which is Alistair and Johnny Brownlee's foundation, which uh, they put through about 10,000 children, go through a sort of triathlon event every year, which is a wonderful event to get children more active. So it's not only environmental, but it's also socially responsible as well. And we like to get involved across the board where we can.
0: Simon, I mean, do you you see... Those kinds of concerns, I suppose, you know, having an impact on, on investors, are they looking for those kinds of things or is it a case of just Harmony playing its part and, and that's Harmony's role, you know, in, in society as a business?
1: Uh, well, I think it's back to what we were talking about at the um, at the top of the uh, conversation, actually. But that's That's fantastic to hear. Peter, I mean, that's, that's a really impactful range of um, interventions that you're making. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, would investors hope to see that? I'm, I'm absolutely sure they would. Uh, where, where is that going to be sitting in the investment hierarchy? I, I, I don't know at the moment. But I think we are um, in a place where just being a renewables business, just being a storage business, just being, you know, a network or generation business is enabling the um, transition. Is that sufficient anymore? No, because it's only one part of one part of the agenda. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to in any way chop across what Peters has been describing. I think what he's described as a, is a super combination of interventions that are all positively linked to what the business is trying to achieve so i know that sounds a little bit of a plug for harmony it wasn't intended to be but it's a it's a really good example of what um, people need to look for for in terms of a joined up story i think investors are really wary of greenwash in it's different guises and, and one of those is kind of initiatives driven greenwash so here's the core business here's something shiny look at the shiny thing and we'll just carry on with what we're doing actually getting a joined up narrative where there are where we sort of avoid any integrity gaps where there are no missing parts to that story is, is, is really key. And that comes down to the integrity of the value proposition.
0: I'm glad you said the the, the G word, uh, Simon, on greenwood I mean, Peter, do you think there is a danger of that within within batteries because of the, the kind of innate benefits that they provide and the, at least the story you're telling? Is there a danger that we kind of believe a little bit too much?
2: Uh, no, I, th- I think the net benefit for batteries is, is exceptionally clear. Um, I think, you know, if you wanted an independent view, just speak to... You know someone very high up at national grid and they'll tell you what an amazing job they're doing in displacing the requirement for fossil fuel assets on the network and then if you you know then if you sort of recalculated the carbon offset benefit it's it's huge right um so i think quite quickly get to an independent view that yeah you know there are some firms that <clears throat> that greenwash things but you know batteries in themselves know they are having a massive impact towards transition to net zero Without any question. And I think, you know, it, it comes down to your, your firm beliefs and your core values in, the, in that firm, like Simon was alluding to. You know, from from Harmony side, just speaking on our side, um, we've always only been focused on renewables since 2010, so relatively early stage. We were offered multiple times to come into gas peakers and diesel gensets, and we just said, no, no, you know, we want to stay 100% renewable, and that's what our core focus has always been on. You, you
0: mentioned the kind of wider net benefits of energy storage as a whole, Peter. You know, how do we think about and, and measure those benefits versus any kind of smaller scale negative benefits either in the uh, supply chain or, you know, to local communities where, where projects might be based? How do you make that case?
2: Um, so in terms of taking local communities to start with, I think, you you know, you have to follow a strict planning procedure, right? With with batteries, in terms of separation distances, um, for things like noise, you know, you do get light noise off the batteries when the fans are working, and you, you have to win the support of the community. Now, most communities on battery projects, it's, it's not really, you know, a huge issue. You will get certain cases where you do get, you know, extreme groups forming social media groups, putting misinformation out there um, about what batteries are, et cetera, et cetera, which is not helpful. Um, But it comes down to a very democratic process with the planners where you have to go through evidence-based, which kind of derails those campaigns and supports what we're doing because we have to present the facts, right? So I I think on that point, it comes back to evidence-based. So using responsible suppliers is key. Um, So Harmony will only use suppliers where we've got transparency on their supply chain Um, we will only use suppliers that are making the right steps towards a fully sustainable system so Envision for example Net Zero manufacturing Tesla extremely strong ESG credentials Um, so it comes down to that developer or the owner operators um, sort of ethos on how much they want to pay to make sure that that supply chain is more sustainable and I guess you know we've set out a very high level to start with that we will only go for the best solutions on the market and you know there's multiple really good suppliers on the market now it's a very competitive space and they're all aware that they you know esg is front and foremost of investors and developers mindsets now uh, and that's really driven by by the investors and communities you know people want to see responsible supply chains and you will get criticized if you have a, a weak link in there You know, if you're using a very cheap supplier, you know, the batteries aren't been recycled, you you know, you will get criticized and your business, you know, long-term won't be a success. There may be short-term gains in there and I don't know how you deal with that, but, you know, we're in this for the very long term. And so for us, it's very important we have, you know, transparency on, on supply chain. Yeah, and that you know that moves on to where
1: corporate appetite is as well. So you know, wouldn't in any way uh, diverge from what Peter has been saying. You know, there is a there's an expectation of transparency, isn't there? And there's a, um, a lack of tolerance for anything that would look like distraction, greenwash, or any other variants that, that you might um, uh, bring forwards in that respect. And we're seeing that come through in terms of corporate appetite and investor appetite and the. You know, the regulatory um, expectations around non-financial assurance as well as the requirements within pure audit are are changing and changing very quickly and, and for good reasons too and they lean into um, really supporting claims you know showing you working in terms of the claims that are being made and I think that's really important you know and particularly in the way that you know consumer community investor and stakeholder expectations shift and the type of information that they they want to see. I don't think um, renewables or, or storage are in any way um, immune from that. You know, we probably saw it first in food, drink, apparel, um, vehicles, whatever it might be, but but it's certainly there right now in um, in renewables and storage, and it's just going to become more prominent. So firms like you know Harmony that are doing this for the right reasons in the right way in the right order, right from the start, great. I think others might um, find themselves under a bit more scrutiny. In the uh in, you know in, in the months or years to
0: come I think uh, Peter has, has definitely made his case but I, I did want to ask you Simon you know ha- do you think energy storage assets are making the case for their own kind of long-term sustainability and their role in the, the transition to net zero versus these uh I suppose short-term or medium-term concerns around things like supply chain things like local impact you know are they
1: winning the argument I, I think they're essential um and I, I think it's essential that we do it um in the right way for the right reasons as just mentioned so um can we just Write ourselves a blank check in terms of saying we can ignore the supply chain because the you know the immediacy of the impact is so great. No, we can't do that. Um, but you know, if we are really focusing on that supply chain and, and, and really trying to drive out malpractice, ensure good governance, make sure we don't create negative social impacts, particularly amongst vulnerable communities and vulnerable people in complex parts of the world, make sure that we don't have knock-on effects from a biodiversity um, uh, ecosystem point of view, uh, as long as we're making a real effort to reach down that supply chain and manage it as effectively as possible, then yes, absolutely, we, we need to be focusing on this. Because um, as we talked about at the, at the top of the call, and as Peter has really uh, articulately said, um, you know, this, is, this is one of the keys to unlock the renewable energy system. So we can't really have one without the other. Just my fear is that we pay too high a price in terms of other pe- other people's social impacts and the um, the wider sort of um, environmental um, c- concerns that we, we, we could actually unfold. But um, as long as we manage that effectively, then I think that's the right way to go.
0: I think that's a, that's a great point to, to end this episode on. Um, thanks to Peter and to Simon for joining us. And thanks also to you for listening. You could let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com and look out for more podcasts from Energy Voice Out Loud and new episodes of The Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. I've been Andrew Dykes, and thanks very much for listening.
3: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com